Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There are definitely um, stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. And there's um, mythologies and stories that have been woven around Black women as always being caregivers and always taking care of everybody because we literally have taken care of the world. Maya Angelou said something pretty harsh in the 70s on an interview, and she said, you know, Black women have literally nursed this country. We, we nursed literally at our breasts white men who we knew then would grow up and kill our sons. And for me, that right there is in a in a very painful heart to hear nutshell is life for black women in this country. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. 
With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Desiree, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually have known about your work for a very long time. Uh, Pamela Slim, who has been a guest here multiple times, <laughs> has actually talked to us about your friendship. And I, I remember thinking, I was like, okay, you know what? Now I want to get this story from Desiree's side. I want to hear about this friendship. So we'll get there. But before we do, uh, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you ended up making with your life? Wow. Um, that's a great question. I actually grew up in Chicago. Um, my mom is still there. I was actually there last week. So I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, and I grew up in the very far South side, 132nd, um, as far South as you can go in the city and still be in the city. And it had, um, a really incredible impact on, on my life. Um, in a lot of ways, um, I um so I do a lot of coaching and consulting and you know how folks always ask to see your um your professional bio right that I send when I speak or do things and uh -huh. um I've started actually pulling sending people also um a cultural bio and 
that cultural bio really speaks to who I am and how I grew up and, um, and, uh, and how that intersects with my work. So um, I'll just share my cultural bio with you. I yeah, think that do. would give you a really, and your <laughs> listeners, a really good idea of kind of who I am. Um, so I'm a 53-year-old Black woman born and raised in Chicago with deep historic and familiar roots in the South. And I describe myself as Black because for me, um, it holds cultural, social, um, and political significance. And um, I was I was raised by in a two parent household, but I was actually a single mother, and I raised two children uh, on my own. Uh, neither of my parents attended college, and both were laborers with high school education. Um, I was the first person in my immediate family to graduate from college, um, and I'm also the first person in my um, immediate family to own my own business, and. Um, so we were kind of solidly lower middle class and job security was everything for my family. So the entire concept of starting a business and working for myself is really, really new for, for my immediate family. Um, we lived paycheck to paycheck. And like most families, you know, my mom occasionally had to borrow from relatives to kind of fill in economic gaps. And, um, I, I live and work at the intersections of race, class, and gender. And so that's that's who I am. And I was raised in an amazingly um, beautiful, loving home with one sibling. I'm the oldest. And, uh, and had the fortunate, the, um, the great fortune to have many beautiful opportunities come my way that allowed me to travel the world at a really young age and go off to college in California and meet Pamela Slim and, and grab her as my best friend when I was 18 years old. All right. So we'll get to all of that. Uh, you, so you mentioned that you're 53. You said that your work is at the intersection of race, gender, and uh, class. And as a minority, I wonder, you know, uh, you know, growing up when you did, um, what were race relations in the United States like, and how did those impact your uh, worldview, your work, and, and kind of what what was going on then that many of us might be unaware of now? Well, I'll just say this: your 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 view on race depends on um, the analysis and the lens that you travel the world with. So, I grew up in an all black neighborhood, and. Um, you know, everyone there owned their own homes and um, were all kind of, you know, folks who had jobs working for the city or the county, but, you know, kind of solid middle class role. But that was my perspective. Um, I'm sure someone else's perspective, um, if they were grew up in an all white neighborhood, would be different. I think the real question you're asking is around kind of something around how we're socialized and, and, and navigate yeah. these worlds. And that's, and, and for me, you know, um, uh, so I teach a lot about the cycle of socialization and how do we kind of get this understanding of who our identities are and how we navigate the world. And I was socialized by people who really loved and adored me and um, basically told me that being a black girl was a really amazing gift. And I always saw it as a gift. Um, I grew up with 
uh, folks who uh, managed to help instill in me a lot of pride and a lot of power around how I saw myself. Um, it was a time when, um, you know, Black Panthers were um, definitely evolved in community work when Jesse Jackson and what and his community work was really powerful in Chicago at that time. And, um, you know, what race relations were like, I don't think necessarily is the question. I think the question is kind of how are we socialized to think about people other than ourselves? And where did those messages yeah. come from? And so, um, so my first level of socialization from parents and family members and neighbors was the one where, you know, I was the center of that story and I was amazingly powerful and I was safe and I was held and I was loved. Um, and it was when those other levels of socialization started coming in, um, whether that was police and law and health and media and language. Um, and, um, you know, the many other layers that we all get where, right, where we start running into these, um, into dissonance, right? And so I always tell people mm -hmm. that second layer of socialization is not only where we're taught who to look up to, um, but it's also where we are unconsciously taught who to look down on. Um, and that comes to us through a million different ways. And a lot of that comes through us through who's not around us and who's not in our world, right? So what we're not taught in the U.S. is what we miss by not being around folks that are not like us. And uh, white folks especially are taught, are not taught what they actually miss by not actually having more diverse worlds that they get to navigate. Um, one thing that I learned as a, as a black girl as part of that second level of socialization, I learned very clearly how to navigate all white spaces. And part of that is because that's how you stay safe. If you are non-white in this country, you learn everything you can mm -hmm. and do around dominant folks. Again, as a part of that, how do I say safe, stay safe in this world? And the reality is yeah. the way the world is set up is that uh, folks with dominant identities um, who in the U.S. contacts are male and white and middle class and um, able-bodied and middle-aged and Gentile and heterosexual, they don't ever have to know anything about me because they don't yeah. need to know about me to navigate their world. You know, it's so interesting to talk to you and, and you just, you know, compare and contrast. I just had a guy uh, literally this morning who wrote this amazing book called My Master Plan. It was about basically going from being in prison to a life of purpose. And he grew up in Baltimore, uh, uh, all black neighborhood. And so I guess, you know, it, what I'm hearing when I hear you talk about this is like, wow, what, you know, drastically different ways of being socialized. And I wonder for a person who has not been socialized in a way that, you know, sounds you know, for you, what was overwhelmingly positive with that first level, how do you overcome that kind of an environment? Well, so I, I think there are a couple of things. I think even in environments that we think may be really harsh, there's always something really beautiful and lovely and gorgeous there. There, there are communities that cares for each other. 
you know, I, I say all of that to say in the context that I didn't grow up in the best neighborhood, but I had a really beautiful mm. upbringing. Um, and there are a lot of folks in my neighborhood who, who did not ex- go on to college, who still live there, who are not able to, um, to really um, leverage opportunities or, um, you know, fight through some of the barriers that, um, that they had to, um, to navigate. And those barriers were were a bit more harder for them than they were for me. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, 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 there is no difference between me and your guests from Baltimore. Let me just say that there is no difference between us. I am he, I, I, I know that neighborhood. I know those people and they're my people. And there is no difference between us. Um, I have been fortunate to leverage opportunities. And those opportunities have sometimes come at a price. Um, I, there are things that I think that I have given up to fit in. To, uh, you know, one of the things I always tease folks about is I say, you know, I know how to make white folks feel really comfortable. <laughs> and it has paid off for me. I know how to make them feel really comfortable. And because I know how to do that, and because it's second nature for me, I've had lots of opportunities that other people don't get. And I've been able to um, get promotions and jobs and, um, and, and is, I think is trusted in certain ways. So I don't take that as me being different from this person. I just take it as that we both had skill sets that we use differently uh, to navigate the world. Yeah. But um, but yeah, you know, part of being uh, a non-dominant identity, right? Being a marginalized identity in this country is that you have to learn those skills to navigate the world. Um, and it is a harder mm-hmm. time accessing resources. So whenever folks talk about underserved communities, what they're really talking about too is that they're communities that are overserved. We like to think, um, and as I've studied over the years, uh, you know, we like to think that these things kind of happen in silos. There's poverty because they're wealthy people. Mm-hmm. There is underserved communities and schools because they're overserved communities and schools. And that comes from, from my perspective, from power hoarding. And power hoarding, and um, and opportunity hoarding, and this sense that as Americans yeah. that we have that there's so much that this pie is limited, and that I can't mm-hmm. give mine up. So, um, I'm gonna ask you a question if I can. What's what's yeah, your definition of, of 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 racism? Wow. Uh- that's that's a really interesting question. Nobody has ever asked me that before, and I'm trying to think of my experiences uh, as an mm-hmm. Indian boy growing up in a small Texas town, where I was one of the. I was at the point, you know, I, I was just back in College Station, Texas, for the first time in 25 years. And when I was there, uh, I remember because we came from Edmonton, Alberta, uh, where we were surrounded by Indians, to being in a school where I know I was the only Indian kid at my first elementary school. There was one Indian girl, and another Indian boy moved to the town when I was in eighth grade, and we left after that. Another kid moved in ninth grade, actually. That's when we left. And he had a turban when he showed up. And the so- following summer, I ran into him at a video store. And I didn't recognize him because I realized he had taken, he'd basically given up his turban uh-huh. and cut his hair. 
And I think the thing that struck me most in Texas that was so odd to me was that I felt discriminated against by black people, by Mexicans and white uh-huh. people. It's like Absolutely. everybody here is racist because I was so unfamiliar to them. It was like, who are you? Yeah, and I, I remember and there was one other moment I remember in third grade when my mom dropped me off at school. Uh, she didn't realize that, you know, all the people that she thought were Indian were Mexican. Uh, she sees a girl walking. She's like, oh, that girl looks Indian. You should be friends with her. I was like, no, mom, she's she's Mexican. She's not Indian. Uh, so I guess that, you know, I also saw blatant racism where just based on the color of somebody's skin, I, I would hear friends and their parents talk about black people. And, and these weren't what struck me most about these observations was that I'm not talking about sort of what you might think of like redneck no. KKK mm-hmm. type people. These are the most educated, wealthy yeah. people in this town whose parents went to Texas A&M. And that I just I couldn't I, I, I was always yeah. shocked by yeah. that. So I don't you know did, if I answered your I, but question you, exactly. So, but so there t- there's some great pieces there, though, that I'd love to to, to chat about with you. Yeah, um, please. So Dr. Ibrahim Kendi, who's this great author, um, actually says that the definition. So we like to think the definition of racism, right, is just like some bad feelings that we have towards one another. And if we just knew one another, mm. right, like if they just knew you, they'd know you were yeah. awesome. And they'd want to play with you yeah. and hang out with you. But the reality is that racism is actually about self-interest. It's about political, wow. social, cultural, and economic self-interest. And we use those, we make those decisions around policy, around our self-interest. So the majority makes those decisions around their self-interest. So having said that, you know, going back to College Station, yeah, there is, you know, the way this country is set up, the way we're socialized is, um, and the way that supremacy wins is because white supremacy is a hierarchy. And we all play a role in that. And so... It is, you know, who's at the top, who's at the bottom, and what is that strata in between? And so part of what makes the system really work is when you have folks who are like, well, I'm just trying to get my piece of this pie because this pie is very limited. There's only so much. So I need to get mine. And I don't care if I get mine at the expense of somebody else's. Right. So that's that's yeah. and that's one of the ways we uh, and then and then all of that's codified. Right. It was codified. This is the thing about that, that socialization I was talking about. This system was put in place before we were born. We were born into it. It is self-supporting. It is self-perpetuating. It is unnamed and it's unconscious, but this is the system that we are born into that teaches us how to be. And that system has us separate, has us living separate lives. Even when we go to the same school, it has us separate within institutions. Right? So we're born into this world, these assumptions, these rules, these roles, the mechanics, these structures. You didn't ask to be born an Indian boy, and I didn't ask to be born a black woman, but this is what we are, right? And and so there's yeah. there's no blame for the identities we have. 
right? There's there's no blame for it, it at all. It, but this is the but we're just born and uh, we have to figure out how do we navigate this system. Yeah. It's interesting to me because, you know, I like to think that my parents are the most open-minded people in the world, but this is, you know, it's like a joke among Indian people. It would be like, you know, sort of the 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 two litmus tests of how racist our own parents are. Bring home a black girl or a Muslim girl and oh, see whether absolutely. they're as open-minded as they say they are. Absolutely. You know, and you know, and I don't mean that as like you know a, a racist thing, but it's just kind of one of those things where I know I'm like that's kind of the one place where I might get a bit of resistance, whether they, whether they will admit ever or admit that or not. And that's kind of all those unspoken when I talked about that second level of socialization, right? When we learn, so, yeah. so when your parents moved here, right? They they were socialized uh-huh. into who you can trust, who you can't trust, who it's okay to be with, who it's not. Yeah. Right. And right. And, and, and we all have it. It's that, you know, I love when people are like, I'm not biased. I'm like, yes, you are. Cause we all are. Uh Cause that's the part of our brain that has kept us safe through millennia. Right. Like that part that says, don't, don't, the dinosaurs will eat you. Don't go over there. And we love shortcuts. Mm -hmm. Our brain was built for shortcuts because we can't handle all of the information that we get. So of course, when I see you, I want to know immediately who you are. And we know this is true because whenever we see anybody racially ambiguous, we stop and we give them like three extra beats. And we're like, what are they? (laughs) We all do it. Yeah. Right. So Uh you're like, okay, Indian, Indian, black. What? Wait. (laughs) So we all do it because we need shortcuts. Because then if I have a shortcut, I know how to interact with you. But it's uh-huh. fascinating how we just never want to acknowledge that. So your original question, like, what did my parents teach me about race? Probably like yours, nothing. Yeah, They didn't mention it. Well, they did. They mentioned white people can't be trusted. But literally, that was the extent. <laughs> which is hilarious since which your best I, friend in the world right, is a white woman. Which then I then proceeded to meet a white girl who became my best friend for 30 years who would come to my house. Do you, I mean, it took years for Uh my family to be like, oh, I guess she is trustworthy and I guess she's not going anywhere. It took years. (laughs) It took years. So before we get into your friendship with Pam, uh, I do want to ask you one other thing, uh, and I'm sure chances are you've probably at least heard about it or seen it in the wake of the, the R. Kelly documentary. The question that came to my mind is, what is the the difference in experience, at least based on what you've gone through, of being a black woman in America and a black man? Oh, in that's such a deep question. And actually, grew up um, in Chicago when that whole R. Kelly stuff was happening. So for for twenty plus years, yeah. everyone in town knew exactly what was happening. It was this unspoken secret, and everybody knew that he came to high schools and picked up girls. Um, you know, that's a substantial difference. So. This is the intersection. This is where intersectionality comes into play. And for for the year folks, intersectionality is is just really um, talking about all the different points where point different points of oppression meet and touch and intersect. So, is it hard being a black man? Absolutely. And that comes from the intersection of racism, but 
the reality is black women also have to deal with the patriarchy. Right. We also have to deal with um, sexism and racism. Right. And so um, in the seventies, there was this group of black women um, and they wrote the Kambahi River Collective Statement, and they were a group of Black feminists. And um, one of the pieces that they talk about in their statement um, is because, you know, they have to have an anti-racist and an anti-sexist position. And they have to love and care for black men while we also fight black men around, you know, patriarchy. And so, um, it is this, it is this place to be where I think of it as we're in solidarity with, um, progressive black men. Um, and, um, around race, um, we're in solidarity with white women around gender, but we also struggle. Uh, so we struggle together with black men and we also struggle with black men. So we struggle together with them about racism, but we also struggle with them about sexism. And it's um, you know, it's a it's a hard place to be. My ex husband, uh, was six six, two hundred fifty pounds, and just a super large, but sweet sweet man. And we worked with children for a lot of years in in camps. And I remember like just telling him to smile, so that he can make folks feel easy around him. Right. Um. So they feel easy around him and, and, and leaving their children with him. Um, I remember when he would be stopped by the police because they'd say they were looking for somebody who was six feet and he is literally like six, five. And he looked nothing like the person, but he would get stopped all the time by the police. So they're definitely, um, stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. And there's um, mythologies and stories that have been woven around black women as always being caregivers and always taking care of everybody because we literally have taken care of the world. Um, 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 oh God, her name just escaped me. Maya Angelou. Um, said something pretty harsh in the 70s on an interview. And she said, you know, Black women have literally nursed this country. We we nursed literally at our breasts white men who we knew then would grow up and kill our sons. And for me, mm. that right there is in a in a very painful heart to hear nutshell 
is life for black women in this country. Wow, you're right. Uh, we could probably do an hour conversation on that alone. Wow. Uh, well, let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. But I want to get there by asking about one other thing. You mentioned that you were the first in your family to finish college. So you know you came from a, a family of laborers. What did your parents tell you about careers? Like, what were the things they encouraged? Oh you my to god! Do with your like, life you get a growing? job with a big company and you make all the money you can. Period. And, uh, you know, I did all these, you know, part uh, nonprofit jobs. And then I worked for IBM for a little bit. And I, I worked for for profits for a few years. And my mother was just like, yes. <laughs> you know, um, because fr from her perspective, I'd made it like, that's why I went to college so that I could, so I could get that job, that office job and, 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 um, and work. And and be successful in that very capitalistic view of what success meant, which is right, which is all the things that have been denied to folks that look like me, um, which is access and power and roles and not having to use my back to work, but using my mind. It's interesting hearing that from you because I know throughout our conversation, you've referenced this idea of you know the piece of the pie and inequality. So I, this is just fresh on my mind because I saw Trevor Noah do a thing on it uh, last night where they were talking about how rich people are the reason social, socialism is making a comeback. And they were talking about Jeff Bezos and the fact that mm -hmm. Amazon didn't pay a dime in taxes. So I wonder yeah. when – and the funny thing is I'm still going to go on Amazon after you and I get done and I'm going to order the books that I want. Uh just because of absolutely i am too <laughs> so but i wonder from your worldview when you see things like that uh does it just enrage you like is there a way out of this so there, so there's two things um that psychosocialization i talk about um there there's some more pieces to it but the reality is this none of us knows how to really to dismantle systems so so i have um for myself, I've come up with ways that I can live my life. And one of those ways is that I will be transactional with systems. And I'm going to use, I mean, I'm going to buy and, and use um, local crafts and artisans and, and, and local folks as much as I can. And I'm also going to use Amazon. Because I'm gonna take my Amazon points and I donate those to right to somebody, and so it's 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 this really fascinating piece. Is I was talking to a friend of mine, and we're like, you know, what's the alternative to capitalism? Because I want to see it, and I am one of these people who's like, I think it needs to be. I we need something else because capitalism keeps going because of. Um, because of the black and brown bodies that feed it, right? On that very lower level. That's how capitalism keeps going. And then we use those bodies up and we don't offer it the, those bodies health care. We don't take care of them mentally. Um, and, and capitalism uses folks up, uses their physical form up. And then, you know, we reach a certain age and, and we're no longer needed or our bodies um, no longer work in a way that works for capitalism. 
So I always say I can be transactional with systems, but I'm only transformational with people. Mm. Wow. And that's how I navigate these systems. I will come in and I will use a system. Oh, yeah, I'm a my client, my big organizational client, I'm going to charge you all the monies. <laughs> I have no problem with this. I'm going to charge you all the monies. And this yeah. local grassroots group here, I'm going to give you all this for free. Uh-huh. Wow. Well, and and for and that's how I navigate this system right now. It may change as I change, as my priorities change. But right now, I'm like, you can afford to pay me the big bucks. You're a big org client. I'm taking you on. I'm taking you on, and I'm coming in, and I'm saying the thing, and I'm I'm doing all that stuff. And then I am going to be able to help this total, these you know young Black entrepreneurs who are trying to start their business. I got time now. So that I can coach them and I can support them as they build out their business. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Wow. Uh, well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about this friendship that you and Pam Slim have that I think is the envy of <laughs> all people who have best friends. I, I know when I heard this story, I was like, wait a minute, you guys talk to each other every day? Uh, yeah. Like, I don't have, I don't even talk to my parents every day to come to think of it. Yeah. You know? And so, what is it? I, I had her tell me. So now I want to hear it from your perspective. <laughs> what is it that makes this kind of a bond possible between two people? Um, be, because I accept her exactly and wholly as she is. And there's nothing that anybody on this earth can do that can make me not love Pamela Slim, including Pamela Slim. There's nothing. I always tell people if she somehow something happens and Pam like shoots up a room full of people, like just something ridiculous happens. Yeah. And everybody's like, oh my God, did you hear what happened to Pam Slim? I would be like, that is not true. That is not true. That could never happen. And in my back, I'm like, okay, somebody go get the best lawyer we can afford. Right <laughs> I always have her back. Always under, there's no circumstances. There's nothing. I, I, and I just, I mean that from, she has just been such a loving, kind friend uh, in the, every sense of the word. Um, there are times when I couldn't, you know, she won't say this, but I'll say it. There are times when I was a struggling single mother and I couldn't buy my kids school uniforms and she did. There were times when, you know, when either one of us were in crappy relationships and we were always there for each other. And, um, yeah, like from the first day I met her, there was just something there and there was something about her. And I, I had no idea she was going to be Pamela Slim of the interwebs when I met her. <laughs> I had no idea that she would write books and, um, just become this amazing source. Um, but I did see that she was, she was magical from the first moment I met her. And um, I always tell people I was fortunate enough to, to sign her in a lifetime contract when we were 18. <laughs> and, um, and, and we say all the time, like, like she says to me all the time, like, you can never quit me. And I'm like, I'm not, it's never going to happen. Like we can never quit each other. It's very clear. Um, yeah. And, and we're going to be together till the end. And like I said, there's nothing that anyone on this earth, including her could do that would ever make me not love her. And mm. so, yeah, I talk to her every day, every morning we talk to each other. Um, when she would first start doing speaking engagements before she would go on, or even when she was doing consulting, a lot more consulting in the beginning, I would call her and I would leave a message on her phone. I'd be like, you're awesome. Everybody wants you. Everybody wants to be you. Like you're going to go in there. And you're going to own everything. Like we we're each other's personal hype people when we need them. Um, there's nothing she can't tell me. Oh. Nothing. Um, Again, that I'm like, we can work it out. We can figure it out. We can make it happen. And so, um, yeah, she's been one of the most amazing gifts of my life. And I'm very fortunate to have her as my, as my BFF. And she's hysterical because y'all don't know, like Pam is 
banana pants. And um, if I, if I don't talk to her, like say she calls in the morning and we don't chat and we haven't chatted by like two or three, then she Facebook stalks me. Um, <laughs> she will literally get on Facebook and say, oh, you can write on Facebook, but you can't call your best friend. And you're like, really? Are we doing this in public? Um, that and- is funny. No, she is. She's just, she is hysterical. That one is hysterical. Um, and she loves pop music and pop culture, and I actually can't stand it. And so she'll always be like, this song, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And she's always like, best friends are supposed to do everything together. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, we're not. We can have separate things in our lives. And she's like, can we really? <laughs> Wow. So, yeah. How has your friendship changed with age? Because I know from having had this conversation with her, like you guys have been at very different points in your life. uh, Yeah. For different things. Yeah. So when I had children, she was single and free and traveling all over the world. Uh Uh-huh. And and making like four or five times the income I was making. Um, And then, which is hysterical, right? So then when my kids are gone and grown, She's still raising children. And I'm like, oh, you're doing third grade math. Good luck with that. See you later. <laughs> right. And and now I'm the one that's constantly, she's like, where are you at now? Like, you're going to where? You're going to the Maldives? Like what? And so um I it's for me, it's 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 been it's been wonderful, right? Because we we sh- we share in each other's victories. And, you know, her children are my children. Josh needs something. I got it. Right. Like, and she's only ever treated my children like her own. And so, um, yeah, uh, being at different points in life. When I was married, she was single. When she got married, I was single. (laughs) We've always kind of been the opposite, which has been really helpful, right, in terms of experience and just being able to support each other through those, through those different times. So, you know, the thing that, that comes to mind is I I hear you describe that. I think you you might've seen it. I did. I've mentioned this on the show before, like uh, earlier this year, I think it was the very beginning of the year. uh, This Spanish liquor company made this video uh, this that went crazy viral. And it was about the time that you have left with the people who matter most to you. Like I ended up writing a blog post about it that was shared like a hundred times, ironically, Uh, Mm -hmm. given the premise of the blog post, but it was this idea of the fact that we spend so much time, uh, staring at screens. And yet, if you do an actual calculation on the time you have left with the people who are closest to you, uh, it's shockingly low. I see my dad every week. And I think the total time that supposedly we have left with each other based on our age was 23 days. And I was like, what really? Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, uh, why you think this kind of friendship is not more common. And do you think the fact that we have technology uh, is, is actually impacting that negatively? You know, this is where we get asked this a lot. Well, I get asked a lot by people too, like, basically, how do you make a friend? And, I, and I'm very confused by the question. <laughs> I'm always like, what? Yeah. And people are like, basically what they're saying is, how did this white woman from Marin County really connect with and become really deep friends with a a woman from the South side of Chicago. 
Um, and I think these friendships can happen. Um, but I think that like anything else, the intentionality that we have to put in them. Yeah. Like I make it my business to talk to Pam every day. Can I go three and four days without talking to her? Sure I could. But if what our friendship takes is just a daily check-in so I can make sure that she's okay, that she doesn't need anything, mm-hmm. then, I'm, then I do that. And I'll tell you, she's not the only person I talk to every day. And this freaks people out. I talk to my mother every day. I talk to my sister every day. I talk to one of my nieces. I have two nieces. I talk to one of my nieces every day. And I talk to both of my children every day. And that that could be texting or phone mm-hmm. for for my kids and my niece. My my youngest niece, I probably talk to her three times a week. She's 16. But my mom, my sister, and Pam, I talk to every day. Yeah. And that is intentionality. Even if it's just to check in and be like, you okay, what you got going on today? You need anything? All right. I got to go get my day started. I'll catch you later. That's it. Yeah. Sometimes we talk for long periods of time. Sometimes it's really just to say, hey, you can't catch me today. I'm, you know, I'm working with clients all day or I'm teaching all day or I'm training all day. So you won't catch me, but I love you and I'll catch up with you tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, sorry. It's the intentionality. I think this question is is really near and dear to me because you know I just turned forty one last week and uh, I, I had a, a really 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 close friend when when I lived in San Francisco and he moved away and we grew apart and no matter how much of an effort I made it just at a certain point I realized wow this effort isn't going to be reciprocated at all mm-hmm. and I thought in a million years I never thought somebody who I thought would without question be the person I'd have speak at my wedding is somebody I probably wouldn't even think about inviting anymore. And that yeah. to me was really sad. Like how in the world could, you know, we've gone from that to a once a year text message. And to me, a once a year text message doesn't warrant an invite to a wedding. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. No matter and how close we were 20 years ago. That's right. No, that's absolutely right. And there are folks that are, you know, I'm friends with on on Facebook and Twitter who I was really close to 20 years ago um, who no longer speak to me. And there are folks who... Um, when I got divorced, um, my husband, you know, friends, friends choose sides. Yeah. And there are folks who, you know, used to be in my house most Sundays for dinner who I haven't spoken to in 25 years. Mm-hmm. And it, it lets you understand, you know, that folks, that it's work. Friendship is work. And you have to be willing, like any other relationship, right? So when we talk about transformational relationships, they don't just happen on their own. And and we all have these lives, right? And these lives overtake us in a lot of different ways. But for me, everything is about relationships. I will be transactional with systems, but I will never be that way with people. It is always meant for us to be in deep relationship with one another. 
You know, it, it's interesting to, to hear you talk about intentionality because this has been a, a year that's been really interesting for my family because my sister just got married. And uh, I think that sometime last year, I just started every Sunday was, okay, Sunday nights are for dinner with my parents. Like That's what I do every Sunday. Uh, mm-hmm. Unless I'm traveling, that's what I do. And even you know when my sister called me in September, she said, you know, I really think you should come on this trip because uh, we're going there to shop for clothing because it's an Indian wedding and that's what you do. And she said you Absolutely. should come. <laughs> she said you really should come because this was possibly going to be the last time we ever do this as a family. And I remember hearing that and I thought, wow, really? That is wild to even think that's that's a possibility. But then I thought, wait a minute, this is she's not wrong about that. Um, no. And I realized that it, I think, you know, part of why I probably have become so much more close to my family, so much so that my parents are like, what do you want to do for your 41st birthday? I was like, well, I want to hang out at the house and I want to invite people and I'm hoping, you know, mom, you'll cook some Indian food. Luckily she, she agreed. And, and, you know, I got to basically spend that time with the people that were the most important people in my life. And, uh, you know, and I realized I was like, wow, this is really, you're right. It, it is about being intentional about creating that. Yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons that I talk to my mother every day is uh, not only because I actually like her, (laughs) but there's going to be a day soon that I won't be able to. Yeah. And that's just reality. And the reality is, I don't know if it's going to be because of me or because of her. Mm. We don't know. My dad, um, my dad died when I was 25. Was I like 25? I was 26 when my dad died. And he had a massive heart attack. And he called me the day before and said he was on his way to Florida because my grandma was sick. And he was on his way down to Florida to see his mom. And um, my oldest daughter at that point was one. And he said, do you, you know, do y'all want to basically ride down with me and go down to Florida? And I said, no, old man, why would I want to get in the car for 24 hours and drive to Florida with a baby? Like, that doesn't sound like fun to me. And I said, no, we'll catch you when you get back. And he said, okay. And he didn't come back. Hmm. And so the reality is we think we know, but we don't know. My dad was 45. He had a massive heart attack. And so, you know, sometimes I I always say, you know, love each other and mean it. And, And loving each other is showing that, right? I tell people I love you when I say goodbye to them. I tell my children, I love you when I say goodbye to them. People laugh. My children are 29 and 25, almost 26. And, uh, you know, they still call me mommy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. And we still very much are folks that say we love each other. um, And that we care for each other. And I have no problem expressing that to folks. I, I don't know about you, but um, I have a lot of folks on Facebook who I don't know, right? So I have like, uh-huh. I don't know how many thousands of followers. You'll probably I have will, a few more after this. <laughs> well, and then when the birthdays pop up, right? And yeah. I used to think, well, I don't know that person. It's weird for me to tell them happy birthday. Sure. 
And then I said to myself, really, Desiree, are we so stingy with love that we can't tell someone happy birthday even if we don't know them? So now anybody on my face, I just am like, happy birthday. Mm. Like, what? what is that about? That we, what, we want to hold it? I'm like, yeah, no, I want to actually, I want to give it all away while I, while I have the opportunity. So you answered, this is one of your answers to the question that I was going to ask next. Uh, What decisions did you make about how to live your life after losing your dad at such an early age? No, it's interesting. My dad and I had a very complicated relationship and uh, he was not someone that I, that I, necessarily liked but comma as i got older i grew to appreciate so one thing my dad taught me that i didn't realize at the time that he taught me my dad actually taught me how to be a friend he was a great friend he was loyal he you know he he wasn't the best parent but he was an amazing friend and when my dad died just so many people were so heartbroken and all these people from wide and far would just come up to my mother and just like sobbing about how much they loved and would miss him. He was a good, loyal friend. And that's one of the things he taught me. And that's one of the lessons that I'm really happy that I got from him. Uh, I keep the word liberation on my body. It's on a little bracelet. One of the things my dad taught me, one of the lessons that I learned from him, is is um, everything I do, I do, I do ultimately for freedom and liberation. Right? What is it? What do What do we need to do to get free? What does that even look and feel like? We don't know because we've never lived a day without white supremacy and we've never lived a day without the patriarchy and we've never lived a day without all these things, all these systems and institutions. So what does it mean to be free? And that's what I ask myself every day. And that's that's what my work is focused on is how do we get free together? What do we need at the center of our work and our lives? Um, and, you know, I have this, I call it this praxis that I've been working through around uh, this praxis of liberation. And it is defy, defend, demand, declare, divest, and dream. And we defy the lies, the lies we've been told about ourselves and about each other. And we defend the truth, Right. For me, one of my truths is that liberation begins when we start to experience ourselves differently in the world, and that at the center of our lives are balance and joy and happiness and security and support and deep relationships. And then we demand transformation. And um, in order to transform, we have to lean, we have to learn to lean into um, complex problems. And that we um, we have 
family and community around us that are fighters and lovers and nurturers and thought partners and healers and friends. Um, and then we, we declare our kind of non-negotiables for freedom. For me, it's about collective power and collective humanity and that we build together. We drive new ways of being. We amplify and support each other. We acknowledge our bruises and our scars, and we do our own healing to move past them. And then we divest from change. So the questions are, so how do we get free? What are we willing to destroy and dismantle for our freedom? And then dream. We can't name what we don't see. So what does victory look like? So once we talk about what we want to dismantle, we have to talk about what are we willing to build? And what reparations do we require to do that? And who do we need in solidarity with us as we do this work? And so that's, those are the lessons that I've gotten through my life. And that's kind of the praxis of how I live and how I work is, you know, through those, through that walk. Wow. Uh, wow. Well, I think that that makes a, a really poetic and incredibly inspiring end to what has already been a very thought-provoking conversation. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Mm. I think it's, it's, um, it's speaking truth. It's unequivocally speaking truth. And because we don't like that. We don't like, we don't like when that person says the thing in the room. But I think that makes you unmistakable. Amazing. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, everything else that you're up to? Um, I'm the only Desiree Attaway on the interwebs. I'm very <laughs> easy to find. All my handles are at Desiree Attaway. Facebook, Twitter, DesireeAttaway.com. I am super, super easy to find. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with the listeners. This has been amazing. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. 
Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.